Now I'd like to return to the short section that we read from Ruth, uh, Ruth's gos- uh, the, the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, uh, and verses 19 uh, to 23. Now you're just coming to this, you may think it's a fairly inconsequential section of the book. It's almost like uh, a bridge uh, between two more important parts, more important sections of the book, and uh, we may just gloss over it quickly. Uh, But I hope you'll find that as we spend a little bit of time under God's word in this passage that uh, we will find it relevant and important for us in our life of faith. We believe that the Bible is God's word, each part of it, and it has significance and importance to us. So I'm going to briefly retell this short story. I'm going to add some little bits that uh, are hinted at and that become more clear later on in the book of Ruth as we will go on to study it. But Ruth had a long and a busy day. She has been in what later transpires to be Boaz's field. And Boaz uh, and uh, his workers have been really generous and kind to her. Uh, she has worked from morning till night. She's only had one break uh, during the day and at lunch. And then she's gone home and she's threshed the wheat that she's uh, uh, gleaned. And she also has a little bit extra left from her lunch that Boaz gave her some roasted uh, barley and she takes that home and she presents it to Naomi. Naomi, her mother-in-law who's been waiting all day, wondering what's happening, uh, how's Ruth getting on, what will happen to us, uh, poverty stricken and maybe fearful uh, of what is uh, the future. Naomi, stagger, uh, Ruth staggers home with 20 pounds roughly worth of uh, grain for them uh, to eat and to make into bread and even some roasted uh, barley that's left over that she can uh, give to her mother-in-law to eat. And Naomi praises uh, the, the, the man whose field she was in and uh, begins to recognize and see that uh, God is uh, with her or God is with them. She goes on when she asks whose field it is. Ruth says, well, it was a guy called Boaz. Boaz? This is tremendous. Boaz is... Uh, a kinsman redeemer. I'll go and explain a little bit more what that means later. Boaz is a close relative. Naomi begins to see that God's provision is working out through what is happening and she uh, thanks and praises God for his kindness, for his hesed is the word that's used, for his kindness both to the living and the dead. And uh, she is excited by what's happening. And so Ruth said, yeah, it's great. And he said that I can come and stay and uh, glean in his fields for the whole time, and uh, and to stay close to the men that he has, the young men in his field. Now here I'm just going to interject something, which Ruth may have been thinking uh, as as we go on the story. She thinks, I'll stick with the young men. I'm sure there's some good lookers there, and these are young guys, and maybe this is God's way of giving me a future, and a husband, and a hope, and maybe this is the answer to Naomi's prayer, that I'll get one of these young men who's about my age, And I can take one of them uh, as my uh, husband, my next husband. But interestingly enough, in chapter 2 and verse 8, you'll see that that, uh, Boaz didn't actually say that. In verse 8, he says, now listen, my daughter, go and glean another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. So kind of Ruth had changed a little bit what uh, Boaz had said. But then Naomi, in response to what uh, Ruth says, probably is also thinking about something. And she says, yes, that's great. Go back to his fields, stay there, and stay close to his young women. Not his young men. Stay close to the young women. You'll be safe with them. 
you'll avoid issues of jealousy. Uh, you'll be protected if you go with them or any other young men. You may be in danger of assault or rape or uh, anything as a, a mobile uh, woman. Uh, stick with the young uh, women. And uh, Bo, uh, Naomi, I'm getting confused with all the names. Naomi was probably thinking, I'm not so interested in Ruth getting hitched up with one of the young men. I'm more interested in her getting hitched up with Boaz because he's a kinsman redeemer and he's the one that will uh, redeem our family. I'll go on to explain a little bit more about that. And Ruth takes Naomi, her mother-in-law's advice. She does return to the fields. She does return to the... Uh, and sticks with the women and harvests with them for the rest of the harvest. So this is God's word. That's the story. It's fairly inconsequential. It's fairly, you would think, insignificant. And yet we recognize it as part of God's word for us. We've seen already that God works in small people's lives, in ordinary lives. Ruth, uh, daughter-in-law, Naomi, mother-in-law, insignificant in world history, but yet hugely significant because they are recorded for us in Scripture. He works in their lives, and he also works at a higher level. Last week we kind of talked about a split screen uh, in the Bible, almost like two, two pictures in one screen. You've got the world from, from humanity's point of view, from Ruth and Boaz or, and Naomi's point of view, where they didn't know the future, they didn't know God's plans, and yet also from God's point of view, where we have constant hints and verses which tell us that God is working out something greater, something better, pointing forward to something more significant, not just for Ruth and Naomi, uh, but for humanity also, which the whole Old Testament is doing. He is a God who works, therefore, at the day-to-day level, in your day-to-day level and in mine, and also at the cosmic level uh, in the universe in which we live. And that's good, isn't it? That's what infinity, that's what eternal, an eternal God, an infinite God speaks of. It means he's infinitely great uh, it, to the infinite X number. He can, uh, is greater than our greatest thoughts and our greatest discoveries and our greatest understanding of the universe. There's much about him we cannot understand because he's infinite and we are finite. And that goes out into the cosmic plans and purposes and control and sovereign power he has over this world. But also it works the other way, doesn't it? He is infinitely interested in the minutiae, in the small things, because he can be, because of who he is. He can number the number, uh, he can count the number of hairs in our head and the number of grains of sand in the sea and be interested in your and my requests and pleadings and lives. Never say to God, Never think, ah, I'm not going to pray about this because it's too insignificant. God is sovereign over the... He's not interested in my small problems and difficulties. That's not the infinite God that we know and love, nor is it the God of Ruth and Naomi. So I'd like to say two things following on from last week. The first is that God works in ordinary lives, and then also God hints at his extraordinary plans here. So we see him here working in ordinary lives, Uh, Ruth and Naomi are very ordinary people and yet they trust in God Uh, Ruth has come to faith in God Naomi has returned to faith in God she's a backslider who's come back to faith in God and now God is outworking his plans in their lives and they are beginning we're beginning to see how trust works in their lives now that makes it therefore important for all of us if we are believers because we are looking always to see how trust works 
trusting in God outworks itself in our day-to-day lives, in our day-to-day thinking. First we see with Naomi that she's moving from bitterness to blessing. We can see God working in our lives by the way she's changing in her attitudes and the way she's thinking. In these verses 19 and 20, when Ruth returns to her and she begins to see what's happening, she says, Blessed be the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And remember at the end of the last chapter, she was saying, Don't call me blessed. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Because God has dealt bitterly with me. And yet here we see, are beginning to see, that God is showing kindness. Loving kindness, blessing, grace to her. She couldn't say that before. Circumstances haven't changed that much. She's moving, as it were, kind of from melancholy to melody. Uh, there's, there's, there's bitterness to blessings. And that's an important journey in our lives. Because repentance, which she has done, she's turned back to God. Remember last week I said that there's whatever else you're doing in your life, nothing is more important than returning to God on a daily basis, keeping going back to God, as uh, Naomi had done. But her repentance wasn't and isn't just a moment. It was a moment. It's not just a moment. It's also a journey. So when we turn back to the Lord, when we've been far from him, when our mouths have been silent, when we haven't been praying, when we've avoided worship, when the Bible is closed, when we're just thinking for ourselves, and then we come to that place where we return to God, It is both a moment when he forgives us and is delighted to hear our voice, but also a journey when we are learning more about him. And Naomi is beginning to see God unpack himself to her in her life so that she is no longer speaking about being bitter. She's now recognizing his kindness, not only to the living, that's herself and uh, Ruth, but also to the dead, her her husband Elimelech and her lost sons Mahal and Kilion that there may still be provision for them. Their name may still be uh, progressed and furthered and may not be lost through uh, what is happening with her and with Ruth. She can see this, this love, this chesed, that's the word that's used, this loving kindness. It's the last word that the commentators or the, the translators uh, translated into English language because it was one of the hardest words. Uh, the, the authorized version always used to call it loving kindness. There's two words. Uh, grace it's a very deep wide word that the English we can't really do justice to but it speaks about God's kindness and grace to his people and that gives her hope in adversity and it leads her to praise now in our lives the same should be the same the same should be the case as we begin to as we turn back if you're cold-hearted and far from him and think that I I've returned to him, but I don't feel his love. I feel his bitterness. I feel coldness towards him. I don't feel this love. Then remember that repentance is not just an act of obedience, a a single uh, reality, a moment. It is also a journey. And as we continue to turn back to God and open our lives to him and seek his guidance and help, we begin and will begin again to see his loving kindness in our lives And we look for that as we return to him. We look for that God of grace to be moving and molding and changing and guiding us. So we see Naomi moving from bitterness to blessing as God works in her ordinary life. But we also see uh, 
Ruth. God working in Ruth's life. And how does he do that? Through Naomi. So Naomi is returning to God and right away God is using her. Using Naomi, who's returning to uh, God, to give Ruth some advice. And that's significant and important. Uh, It's very ordinary, it's very everyday advice, as it were. It's nothing particularly uh, 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 deep-seated. But she says, yes, Ruth, you go with the women. Don't go with the men, go with the women. Now, I just want you to do a short word study with me. I need to waken you up because it's hot and sweaty in here. And uh, it's hard to concentrate. So I want you to follow with me in your Bibles to four references to the same word. Now, usually when God uses the same word in a passage, it's for a reason. Because he wants us to link them together. And if you look at chapter 1 and verse 14, we have the famous uh, verse right at the beginning of the story where uh, Naomi and Ruth and Orpah are maybe going to part from one another. They lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. That's the word I want you to think of, that Ruth clung. He stayed close. It's a word that means that that there's intimacy. It's used in Genesis 1 of of Adam and Eve coming together. They they came close to one another. They clung to one another. It's a a word for closeness and uh, reliance and protection. Then in 2 verse 8... You'll see uh, Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not glean in another field leave, or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Same word. Cling, cling, stay close, be protected by my young women. And then in chapter 2, again in verse 21, where we read, uh, uh, Ruth says, um, Ruth said, besides, uh, you shall keep close to my young men until they have finished my harvest. Cling to my young men, is what she says. The same word that's used in these three. And then Naomi, in the last uh, time we see it in verse 23, uh, Naomi says, so keep close to the young women. Cling to them. So we have a journey here using that word where we see that uh, uh, Naomi, uh, Ruth uses that word because she uh, recognizes what's important. She wants to stay close to Naomi and Naomi's God. And uh, she knows the significance of that. And then it's as if she thinks, well, now that God's brought me here, I'll stay close. I'll cling to these young men. That's where my future lies. That's where I'll get a husband from. That's where I'll, I'll stay. And God will perpetuate uh, the name of Naomi and her family. Uh, and I'll, I'll cling to them. But then Naomi says, no, cling to the young women. That's where you'll be safe. That's where you'll be protected from jealousy and from uh, anything else. And also, whether Naomi recognized that understood God's purpose here but ultimately she was saying God's got a different plan for you it's not for one of these young men who you're compatible with and who's your same age it's for Boaz he's an older man but that is who the kinsman redeemer is to be God had a purpose and a plan uh, for where Naomi had to cling uh, where Ruth had to cling to where she had to stay close to where uh, she was to find her future and it wasn't uh, where she thought was the practical and uh, the responsible place to be. So she listened to Naomi, her mother-in-law, and she did what Naomi said and learned from her in that advice. Now, we don't know exactly how how much Naomi knew or even Ruth knew, but we can see the split screen, can't we? We can see God working and we can see uh, uh, God working in their lives and uh, with his higher plans. 
And I think there's a great model there for us as community. If you take Naomi and Ruth, and I'll, I'll come back to this at the end, as a little uh, uh, example of church, of a community of, of people together, of Christ, believers together, then it's important to learn from the same kind of lessons that Ruth had, to stay close, to take advice from, to cling to those who will take you in the right place. Young people, that's a very important lesson to learn in your Christian lives, to cling to and to stay with and to take advice from Christians who are older than you, who have been through it before you, and who will guide you prayerfully, we hope, in the right direction. And we'll give you advice that sometimes may not seem the most practical or the most relevant, but will be uh, woven from uh, experience in their lives. Hugely important that we learn that we're intergenerational, that we learn from one another and grow in grace together. And the older people, don't come away and say, wow, there's nothing for me to do in this church that's full of young people. Nonsense. You have a hugely significant role to play in leading, in guiding, in getting to know, in spending time with, in being sacrificial towards the young and the faith, towards the lambs, towards the people who need, like Ruth, guidance and uh, direction. And that together we learn from one another and we grow together. I'll come back to that and finish with that later on. It's just a, a kind of broad application of what is here. So we see God working in ordinary lives. We see Naomi moving from bitterness to blessing. We see Ruth being willing to respond to guidance that she's given by another believer who ultimately is, is guiding her in God's paths and leading her the right way and keeping her, protecting her from danger. It's a great thing as an older Christian to do, to keep a young Christian from spiritual danger. There's probably nothing more important that you'll do than take a young Christian away from the edge of the precipice. Not condemning them, not pointing the finger, not staying away from them, but committing to them and drawing them back into security and safety and into God's will. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that not only does God work in ordinary lives, but God hints here at his extraordinary plans that come through the book of Ruth. Because what we have introduced in verse 20 is uh, the, uh, the concept, the idea, which is very foreign to us in Scotland, in the Western world in the 21st century, the idea of a kinsman redeemer. In verse 20, Naomi says, the man is a close relative, or one of our redeemers, our kinsman redeemers, a goel is the name uh, uh, for that uh, in the Hebrew and the Old Testament. And uh, this concept is introduced here. And it's very important that we understand it. It's not king's man, not K-I-N-G. It's kin, as in kith and kin, as in family. Family redeemer is really, covenant family redeemer is what's been spoken about here. And what we understand by what's happening here is that God is telling us about his plan for humanity that involves a redeemer, the Lord Jesus, the great kinsman redeemer, of which Boaz is a type, points towards and we do need to understand a little bit about the culture that uh, God developed around his own people uh, where this kinsman redeemer was important. And we'll look at that briefly. It reminds us, by way of introduction, of the centrality of kin in the mind and in the purpose of God. The centrality of family. God is, God is not 
a, a divine solitary. God is not a divine uh, individual. He is a triune God. He is a God in society, God in community, God in family, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a perfect fellowship and friendship uh, and trust and love with one another. And we are made in his image, male and female in his image, uh, made not to be alone. So we reflect God and God is reflected in God. The importance of family is reflected in God's creation. That he made us a family. He made us community. I'm speaking here greater, more so even than just simply in marriage, but in wider family and through grace in the church and through community generally. We see that. And we see that sin right from the beginning has come in to break family. That Cain kills Abel. And, and we see division and separation and tension. And Satan has always come in to divide and to, to tear apart community and family and marriage and church also. Um, which is why in Ephesians 1.10, we just finished in our morning church before the summer Ephesians, that the core, that the, the center of Ephesians is the pur- redemptive purpose of Jesus Christ is to unite all things to himself in Christ. Things in heaven and things in earth. That was the central theme, to unite, to bring together. Because kin matters to God. And in this Old Testament people, the covenant people of God, the family of God, the Israelite people of God, we have this provision for the protection of it through a kinsman redeemer. So that the effects of brokenness and poverty and loss and brutality and division could be dealt with in this way. And, you know, that's what we see in it when I was talking about in our prayer, the, the terrible reality of uh, what sin does. It, it, it divides, isolates, it separates. We see it in society. We've been praying about it in society, in the terrorism that we see, in the nations rising against one another. We see it in communities. We see it in uh, families. We see it in marriage. We see it in church. And it's anathema to God to see that because his core purpose is to unite us, to bring us together. We just so easily, in the name of God, divide proudly and arrogantly and self-righteously. That's his purpose, is to draw us under uh, the unity of the gospel. So, the Old Testament covenant covenant community, uh, this kinsman-redeemer concept, it had four aspects to it that I'll just mention very briefly which was to redeem uh, someone in the family, had the position, had the authority, had the provision, the resources to redeem others in the family uh, who were in difficult circumstances. The first is from slavery. Okay, Leviticus 25 tells us that. A stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of a clan, then he, is, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. So it was redemption from slavery where one of God's people became a slave. Or it could be also redemption uh, in terms of financial redemption, buying back land. You know, land was was how they lived. They lived by working the land. And so there was the possibility if they sold their land through poverty to allow that, the redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. 
Because land was hugely important. It was the means of production. It was the way that they lived. There wasn't uh, a, a support system other than that. Then connected to uh, the kinsman redeemer was the idea of the Leveret Law, uh, which is a very strange concept to us altogether, uh, where uh, Ruth, or Naomi certainly alludes to it, and it's spoken of elsewhere in the Old Testament, where if uh, brothers dwell together, one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband, husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of her husband's brother to her, and the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Because the whole idea of generation and name and family was hugely significant, hugely important. No, it doesn't have the same resonance with us and seems a bizarre and strange thing. Uh, but it was because of the importance of the seed and the family to protect and to preserve uh, life. And then the last, the fourth element of the kinsman redeemer is the avenger of blood. The avenger of blood shall put, shall himself, that is the kinsman redeemer, shall put the murderer to death when he meets him he shall put him to death so there was a the kinsman redeemer had a responsibility to a member of their family who was murdered it was life for life and he was to take the life of the murderer uh, justly uh, in God's eyes as part of a recognition of the sacredness of life and also the, the importance of kith and kin and family now the kinsman redeemer concept is God's introduction to us and to the people throughout the Old Testament of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who's our Redeemer, our kinsman Redeemer, the one who comes to uh, redeem his people. I mentioned that, or we read that in Luke chapter 4. He'd come to redeem his people, to bring them back from slavery, release them from slavery. And that is part of the, the image that relates back to this picture here, of whom Boaz was a, an imperfect example. So it points forward, therefore, to the plan of God for humanity, both cosmic and uh, individual, personally dealing uh, with the problem that we face, the problem of death, the problem of guilt, the problem of slavery, the problem of no, having no future, no home, and no inheritance. And we are to understand that, because it changes our understanding of God and our understanding of Hesed, kindness, grace. Whatever our circumstances, and remember Naomi and Ruth's circumstances weren't great, but they begun to understand what God was doing in their lives. So in the cross, the cross of Jesus, which remains central and core to our faith, to our understanding, it speaks of at least these, at least these four elements, and I'm sure a whole lot more, of redemption that comes out of this Old Testament picture where God is working, preparing us to understand him better. So it reminds us, and this is important for us to remember, that in Christ as Christians we are released from slavery to sin. Remember we talked about slavery? Galatians 5.1, for, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore. Do not again submit to a yoke of slavery. It's, it's, it's returning back to this whole concept that would have been known to the people of God. As is the passage in Ephesians 1, where we're reminded that he has redeemed us and freed us to serve him and follow him by his grace. Well, what does it mean to be enslaved to sin? Do you think you're enslaved to sin as a natural person? 
What, what does that look like? What does it look like for someone to be enslaved by sin? It simply means that we are imprisoned by desires and by motives that don't take God into consideration. We can be enslaved in the most polite and nice and gentle and kind looking ways, but we can have hearts that are far from God. It means that out of Christ, naturally, we can do good things with the wrong motives. We can't do good things with the right motives, to, to, in other words, to glorify God. We can't do good things that will please God. We choose to do things that God hates. We love being in control of our own lives and we can't break free naturally. We're enslaved. And the fact that we're all going to die naturally is recognition of that. And Christ comes to set us free by his death on the cross so that we can be forgiven. He breaks the power of sin. He breaks its curse. He breaks its strength. He breaks our inability to do good so that we can, as we trust in him, are empowered by the Spirit, we can. We are set free to serve him. We can love him. We can glorify him. We can make mistakes and be forgiven by him, but not be enslaved and not be imprisoned. And you can't walk out from here and say, oh, I had to sin. It's just in my nature. I couldn't do the right thing. I just had to give in to temptation. If you're not a Christian, that's, that's, that's the reality. But if you are a Christian, that's not our excuse. It often is our experience because that's the choices we make. But we can resist sin and resist temptation and make the right choices and not be enslaved because Christ has set us free to serve him. We need to return and not become slaves to sin because slave, sin will destroy us and sin will eat our hearts and sin will deceive us into a black, dark, empty place. So we see redemption uh, in terms of freedom from slavery. We also recognize it in the offer of life, life for life. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by coming a curse for us uh, uh, so that we might know the blessing, the promise spirit, the life that he gives. So that he's our substitute. We know that there's that as our kinsman redeemer. He dies in our place so that we can live. We have the resurrection power in our lives. We receive his blessing and his kindness and his loving kindness in our lives and eternal life before him. And that life that he offers, that um, just where, uh, the cross where justice and peace kiss mutually, where his love and his justice is satisfied, also remind us that one day his ultimate justice will be satisfied. And all the injustice we feel in this world in which we live, all the wrongs that have been done to us, will ultimately be judged before the living and true God of all things. Because he's the kinsman redeemer. He will redeem us. He will forgive us because he's paid the price for our sins. But he will bring justice to bear in this world, this universe. Which uh, will be the introduction of the new heavens and the new earth wherein dwells righteousness. And as a redeemer, he also offers us uh, belonging. Okay, this is merging the last two elements of kinsman redeemer together. So we have, we talked about buying back land, the kinsman redeemer. Well, God gives us an inheritance. We're told that here in 1 Peter 3, 4. Blessed or uh, thank God for uh, Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, whose great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So we have this great, we've got this great property, we've got this great belonging, this great home, this home wherein dwells righteousness that will encompass the new heavens and the new earth, which will be glorious and which will be ours. The land belongs to the Lord and will be ours uh, as he redeems us from that curse of not belonging. Whatever else hell is, it's a place of no belonging, of no home, of no love, of no security. And also, not just uh, an, a land, but also a name, uh, the, the remembrance, the, the passing forward of a name of a, of a people. The nation shall see your righteousness in the king's Isaiah 62 says, See your glory and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. And in Christ, in other words, we have an identity. Just as uh, the Leveret law was to uh, intend to keep the identity of a people, of a clan, of a, of a name in perpetuity going forward. So in Christ we have a name. We have belonging. We have our identity. So often we look for our security and our name in other things. Uh, our houses, our careers... Uh, the name we have in society is all so transient. It's all so, you know, a few years from now, my only name will be at best on a gravestone, forgotten by most. Uh, and the house that we have will be passed on. We'll not be there anymore. We, we're just, we are here for just a moment and we pass on. But yet Christ gifts us as our kinsman redeemer, this great home, this great future, this great identity as belonging to him. That is what should give us a perspective when we're struggling as Christians, when it's difficult, when we're poverty stricken, when we're lost, when things are difficult. We need the split screen of scripture. We need to see that God is working in our very small, ordinary, everyday lives, but he's also got a great purpose and a great plan, which he was beginning to unfold in the stories of the Old Testament and in Ruth that come to culmination in Jesus Christ. He's our Redeemer. Do you know that you have a Redeemer? Do you live as if you have a Redeemer, a kinsman Redeemer? Do you know that you've been rescued, you've been freed, you've been given an inheritance and a name, and that it's significant? that it's important, that it's valuable? Or are we chasing a name? Are we chasing a bank account? Are we chasing our own purposes and our own plans that they might give us what we think we want and need? For God, the infinite God of the universe, says, I've provided for you. I know it's tough. I know it's difficult. Because we live in a broken world where Satan is thrashing out in his last uh, death throes. To try and pull us away from himself. That's what Satan will do. He will try and pull you away from Jesus. While you and I are asked to return to Jesus every day, Satan will say, don't bother. It's a waste of time. Just go for it yourself. Live under your own steam. Somewhere in the future, you may understand redemption, he will say. So I finish just by going back to the point I made at the beginning about the importance of uh, kin to God, the importance of family, the importance of community, the importance of his... He's our... El you know, it's talked about in the New Testament as our elder brother. That comes from this whole concept as well of kinsman redeemer. 
He's a family member. God becomes our loving father. And there's this closeness, this community. You're not saved uh, to be an island. You're not saved to be an individual. It's not a consumerist gospel where you take what you want and just drift off and live your own life and uh, pick and mix salvation. It's that you're saved into a people. You are grafted into the people of God. You become part of a family. A family's tough. Family's hard. It's much easier to go our own way. It's much easier just to be an individual. Because family let us down. Because family fail. Because family are a mess. And yet he says to us, I've saved you and I've redeemed you to be a people. And I've redeemed you young and old. Naomi to give advice, Ruth to take advice, to learn from one another, to grow, to seek it out, to search it. Don't, re- don't, see fam- don't see church in consumerist terms. wonder what this church can give or can do for me. And if they don't do it for me, then I'm just going to go off in the huff because they're not doing it for me. They're not acting as Christ-like as they should. Well, we know that because we all do that ourselves. We, we act as, as we shouldn't. But our responsibility is, is to act Christ-like ourselves individually and if it isn't happening among others then it must happen from our hearts out let us begin the revolution in the church if it's a cold and distant and careless and uh, loveless church that's divided and split and separate let us be the the beginners of redemption we are a redemptive people and so the church of all places the community i'm speaking of here the community our own church, St. Columbus, or as visitors, all the churches you belong to, uh, it's anathema for our churches to be communities divided, to be untrusting, separate, um, uh, uncaring, uh, and intolerant of one another because it means we don't know our own hearts and we don't know what Christ as kinsman redeemer has done for us. And we are to reflect that same kinsman-redeemer attitude. We are to defend and protect and love and care and provide for one another. We don't just say, I'm all right, Jack. That's not the gospel. The gospel says, I haven't seen them for a while in church. I know they're struggling. I'll just avoid them. No. And it says, I'm struggling, but I'm not going to avoid church. I'm not going to stay away from that wretched bunch of people. I'm going to come in here and I'm going to worship and serve and seek to be ministered to and look for it and ask for it. Oh, yeah, we're struggling and we're failed. But we are God's community that are to reflect the unity of the, the aim of Christ, uh, which is to unite all things together in heaven and on earth. We are a struggling and failed and, and weak people. But above all, as I mentioned this last week, I can't remember what it was I mentioned last week. It flashed through my mind. Um, yeah, above all, <laughs> last week I said that we should have a love for the outsider. Remember that, if you were here? Because uh, that is what's reflected in the book of Ruth. And that is how this care and concern and this love for kin should be reflected in the church, that we have a pastoral eyes, that we look out for the lambs, We look out for the broken, the weak, the struggling. That we don't just gravitate towards our pals, the ones that we are on the same social scale as, the ones that are getting on well, the ones that are doing great spiritually. We go to the ones who are isolated, who are struggling, who are finding things difficult. And if we don't know that, then it's our duty as brothers and sisters to do so.
and to find out. We are redemptive people and we have a great privilege of being part of God's redemptive family. But along with privilege comes great responsibility. And so we uh, seek to reflect uh, God and reflect in our walk of faith uh, what it means to belong to a family with all our feelings and all our faults. And I'll be the first to put a hand up and talk about the faults of the minister and the elders and the deacons and the members of this congregation. But as we strive together to learn and grow and develop and mature, uh, because we're a redemptive people. We have a kinsman redeemer in Jesus Christ who has freed us from slavery who has given us a, a hope and a future and a name and a belonging that nobody can take away. Don't let Satan deceive you otherwise. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father God, we ask and pray that we would recognize the power of Jesus Christ and his message and his great love and his great desire for bringing us together. Forgive us when we reflect a divided, mistrusting, selfish, careless, godless uh, and judgmental attitude so often in our own hearts and uh, very often we don't even uh, make that public but you know Lord our hearts and you know how often we judge everyone by our own standards and how often we are always very judgmental and hard uh, and minute in our condemnation of others and very generous and gracious and forgiving in our attitude towards ourselves. Forgive us when the evil one can take the good things of the gospel and pervert them and twist them. And help us constantly to return to you, to know your chesed, your great loving kindness, your great care and concern. Even in difficult times, as it was for Ruth and Naomi, may we remember that often we can't see and we don't know. We feel like we are barren or we are in a famine ourselves. May we still return to you and uh, know and begin to experience the journey of repentance. And may we be blessed. Lord, we thank you that you showed outstanding commitment and love in becoming the kinsman redeemer to your people who had no interest in you and nothing to offer and no goodness. But you've come and redeemed us and given us hope and a future. We rejoice in that today and we pray your blessing on us as we rise from here that it would be something that the Holy Spirit takes and challenges and uh, teaches us. And as we go into this week, we will often think about these words from Scripture and about the story of Ruth and about its message of uh, the great Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen.